There is a podcast that lies between the imagination of two simple-minded earthlings. Travel with these two longtime friends, Jimbo and 80s E, as they attempt to explore the fifth dimension. Follow along with them as they take the key and unlock the door to the vast space between shadow and substance. This podcast is one of trivia, of insight, and of sounds and ideas from one of the greatest television shows ever produced. You are embarking on a timeless journey. There is your signpost up ahead. You are entering the tragedy of cinema's Twilight Zone. You walk into this room at your own risk. Because it leads to the future. Not a future that will be, but one that might be. This is not a new world. It is simply an extension of what began in the old one. It has patterned itself after every dictator who has ever planted the ripping imprint of a boot on the pages of history since the beginning of time. It has refinements, technological advances, and a more sophisticated approach to the destruction of human freedom. But like every one of the super states that preceded it, it has one iron rule. Logic is an enemy and truth is a menace. This is Mr. Romney Wordsworth. In his last 48 hours on Earth, he's a citizen of the state but will soon have to be eliminated because he is built out of flesh and because he has a mind. Mr. Romney Wordsworth, who will draw his last breaths in the Twilight Zone. Hi, guys. Welcome back to the Tragedy of Cinema podcast, the Twilight Zone series. I'm your host, Jimbo. And in the southern layer, his co-host, ADZ. ADZ. ADZ, we've made it. We've made it the to last. the final episode, yeah. It only took two and a half years, but we are here at the <laughs> end of season two, episode 29, The Obsolete Man. Yeah, we might be obsolete after so many years of taking to record this stuff. Oh, my goodness. Right. So let me launch into this. So we Yeah, can, just dive in. Let's right, get going. Let's say we completed something in our lives. So The Obsolete Man, <laughs> this is The Twilight Zone season number two, the final episode, episode number 29. And this one was directed by Elliot Silverstein. It was written by Rod Serling. And the original air date for this episode was June the 2nd, 1961. And this, of course, brings us to our favorite, ep- well, the segment in our episode, the... The segment we all know and love as On This Day in History. All right. So, for On This Day in Film and TV History for June the 2nd, as referenced before, in 1958, Alan Freed joins WABC in New York City uh, as a radio. He was a famous radio disc jockey, I guess. I did a little... I didn't know who he was. Do you, do you, does he recognize him? No, but I thought you were going with WKRP Cincinnati there no. for a second. <laughs> That's a, that's another show for another day, but uh, Alan Freed, he basically, he was influential in the 50s uh, when rock and roll was kind of in its infancy, and he kind of bridged racial gaps in bringing rock and roll to uh, the African-American community, really bringing it, it into white uh, culture in America, kind of mm-hmm. bridging that gap. So he was sort of a pioneer in that regard. Didn't li- He lived a very short life. I think he only lived like... 40, 42 or 43 when he passed away of alcoholism. but And he had problems with the IRS, if you really want to dig into that, but we won't go there. But Alan You Freed, really go down the rabbit holes on right. this in history, don't you? Right. So that was 1958. So skip ahead a few decades. In 1981, Barbara Walters famously asks Catherine Hepburn, if you were a tree, what kind of tree would you be? That was a famous interview, I guess, from the 80s. I remember seeing it, but mm-hmm. I've never seen it in its uh, entirety. So, Eric? If you yeah. were a tree, what kind of tree would you be? No idea. I don't. A dead one, probably. I think you'd be <laughs> an old weep, one. A weeping willow is what you'd be. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, to, let's skip to the end of the decade of the '80s. In 1989, this is a great movie. 1989, Dead Poet Society on June the second. It uh, opened, starring Robin Williams, and it premiered on June the second, 1989. Good movie. Have we covered that one yet? We need nope. to. Yes, we do. Yeah. So, let's go to the 21st century. In 2002, the 
crime drama The Wire was created by David Simon and it starred Id- Idris Elba and Dominic West and it debuted on HBO Network. So that was 2002, June 2nd. 2004, here's one that's probably somewhat familiar as well, Ken Jennings. He begins his 74-game winning streak on the syndicated television show Jeopardy. So June the 2nd, 2004, he started his long 74-show streak. That's almost 20 years ago now. I know. Wow. Time flies. And finally, in 2022, a jury, uh, jury in defamation case brought by Johnny Depp against his ex-wife, Amber Heard, awards Depp $15 million in damages and compensation and Heard $2 million in damages, and that took place in Fairfax, Virginia. One short year, well, a little over a short year ago, year and a half, that uh, that was a widely broadcast. What Did you clown, catch any of that? What a clown case that yeah, was. that was kind of... Talk about pooping on pillows and peeing in beds, and I don't ridiculous. know. <laughs> so, let's go back to our episode, and our production costs for this particular episode come in at $56,570.75 for this Twilight Zone episode. And as always, when we adjust that for inflation, we're looking at $582,113,000 with a 929% increase. Dates of rehearsal are as follows, April the 6th and the 7th of 1961 for rehearsal and dates of filming. We have three dates here. We're looking at April 10th, the 11th, and 12th of 1961. And with that, I will step aside and Jimbo, please take our illustrious cast for this episode. Absolutely. Honestly, there's only two main characters in this episode if we break it down, but I'll cover a little bit of all of them just so we don't forget anybody. This is obviously another person we've seen in the Twilight Zone for several iconic episodes. Burgess Meredith um, plays Romney Wordsworth. Uh, of course, he was most probably famously known for in Batman 66 as the Penguin. Also, uh, in Clash of the Titans, another classic 80s movie. And later on in life for the Grumpy Old Men series, where he played father to Jack Lemmon. Uh, great movie there, too. I don't know if you think of Twilight Zone, there's a more iconic actor that's played in the Twilight Zones and most memorable scenes. Personally, you? Um, it would be he'd be hard pressed to find someone else that uh, eclipses Burgess Meredith. Um, I don't think eclipse, but maybe William Shatner will be remembered too. But I'm just saying, as far as the most, right? As far memorable, interesting though. Just as a sidebar, the, as we get into the notes, I think I wrote it down. There was actually someone else scheduled to play the main role, uh, but we'll get to that in a minute, right? And then playing the evil chancellor, if you will, Fritz Weaver. He was in the Thomas Crown Affair from 1999, as well as in Creep Show from 1982. As you look over and see my gigantic creep here in the yes. studio, there, Eric. He is very large. Then you had Joseph Ellick. He played the subaltern. Um, he was in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in 1975. Harry Fleer played a guard. He was in Black Sheep Squadron in 1976. Barry Brooks was a board member. Uh, he was in Ben Casey in 1961. Harold Innocent, what a name. Uh, he was a board member. Uh, he was in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, Eric, where he played the bishop, or a bishop. Uh, Jane Roman, uh, she, uh, Romaine, she was a board member. Uh, she was in The Twilight Zone. But her acting credits, um, when you look it up, she is known as being a hairstylist. She was a hairstylist for seven movies. Um, one of them was the star... I believe in 1952. Oh, so I, you're saying she played a hairstylist? No, no, she was the she hair was the st- actual hairstylist. That's what I gather from okay. it. You know what I mean? Got you. Um, and I said, and you know what I mean? I've got to break. Stop saying that, man. I feel like a broken record. Huh. Know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, uh, Don Hamilton uh, was a board member who was uncredited. He was in Million Dollar Baby in 2004, and yes, Eric, the legendary Rod Serling. The host, narrator, and creator of the Twilight Zone of wraps course. out your cast for the obsolete man. All right, thank you very much. So uh, let's move to the plot of this episode. In a futuristic totalitarian world, meek and mild 
mannered librarian Rodney Wordsworth, boy, that's a mouthful, finds himself on trial for being obsolete. This future society has decided on everything that people need to know. There is no God, and there is no books. There are no books. I wrote that down. That's bad grammar. Society obsolete for me. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Society doesn't need librarians. Romney makes an impassioned plea about his right and free will, but the judge in this, in this particular case, the chancellor, will have nothing to do with it. The jury finds Romney obsolete and orders him to be executed. As he uh, can choose the method of his death, Romney plans. Uh, Romney's plans include a little surprise for the chancellor. So, right off the bat, he can choose his method of death. He was given a a, a various selection, right? Three, I think. Mm-hmm. But he didn't choose from the three that were like issued to him. But anyway. Um, Plot hole number one. Which, yeah, they, they, they were very lenient in allowing him to choose the method of a bomb for his death. Or, I don't know. Let, let's go ahead and open the outline. We, we can maybe touch on that later. The outline. So when we go to the actual episode and we open it up, the first scene of the episode that we come to is... I thought it was really well done. It was kind of impressive to me, really. It's it's like, uh, well, you you open with the words, Wordsworth, Romney, obsolescence. It's very uh, droll, and you're in this like cavernous room, is what the the scene really opens up with. It reminded me a lot of the Wizard of Oz, you know, in that scene where they go in to see Oz, that huge cavernous room, and how the doors open. Yeah, the, the doors are really course. tall. They, they were. Uh, the, the doors are extremely tall and it's the it looks like the judge's bench is it's it's extremely elevated too it's really high up and then there's like a witness table it looks like a conference table that's extremely long as well that goes uh, from the Chancellor's bench and uh, Romney is at one end of that long extreme conference table and the Chancellor is elevated really high at the other end of um, the conference table. And we talked about the very large doors, and then you know Romney sort of sheepishly walks in, and Rod begins his narration. And I'll, of course, drop this in at the beginning of the episode. Um, but I thought it was important enough. I'll just read it here as well. It says, "Logic is an enemy, and truth is a menace." This is Mister Romney Wordsworth in his last forty-eight hours on Earth. He is a citizen of the state, but will soon have to be eliminated because he's built out of flesh and because he has a mind. Mr. Rodney Wordsworth, who will draw his last breaths in the Twilight Zone. So after that, we have a a commercial break right away. Then we come back and then we're right back in this courtroom scene, if you will. Anything stick out to you or... Um, I noticed that when um, I like how they did the shadowing there with the doors opening and stuff. But if you look behind the door, there Mm -hmm. is like a guy sitting on like um, like a little ledge or something like with his head down and his legs hanging over the side. If you look outside the door, yeah, pretty interesting. I I didn't know if that was a guard or do you think that's a goof? Maybe. Well, I thought maybe it was the next guy waiting to come in to the the obsolete room. Yeah, that's why he looks depressed (laughs) hanging up there. Yeah, I didn't catch that on the first. Turn. Well, actually, I did. I just assumed I, that it was very quick, and I just, I guess, thought it was a guard, maybe. But so, when we return to the judgment hall, we discover that Wordsworth uh, is a librarian, and at this revelation, we hear jeers and laughter from the surrounding like gallery when when it's when it's you're obsolete when he's declared obsolete because a librarian is obsolete because they don't have books. Which is very interesting since the first time we saw Burgess Meredith, he was all he wanted to do was read, mm-hmm. and here he is, a librarian. Would you say this is the prequel to the Time Enough at Last? I, mean, <laughs> I don't or know. The, you could say because that. he said there are no more books, so you know the the bomb went off or whatever. But um, maybe he was blown up and put in to the you know Time Enough at Last world, right? Something like that. <laughs> um, the other thing that stuck out in my mind is who are these people on the sides of the of yeah. this room? They're kind of weird. They're people. They're people of, of the state, right? It's heavily 
the the message I, I have it here in my trivia notes uh, when we get to him. But Rod had a an agenda in writing this. It was it was meant, you know, to send us a particular message, and I'll let him describe that better in detail because he would obviously was the author and he knows why he wrote it. But this caused, as you might imagine, it caused a little bit of stir and co- controversy. There were many letters that were written back to him about this episode. But let's return back to the judgment hall, and he he's classified as obsolete, and his sit, he is sentenced to be liquidated in 48 hours. So the chancellor, he tries to urge Wordsworth to change his occupation by using an illustration. He uses the illustration of one of a minister and the word of God. For since the state has determined there is no God, that would make the minister's job academic in nature, or obsolete if you will which is kind of interesting because the chancellor's up there on a podium like a minister right and he he in fact is the the arm of the state the state is god and obviously we're again talk touching on when we put this in context of the time in history where we're talking about communism and socialism and and, uh state-ruled government um so all of those Ideas and things are interwoven, and I I think they're done pretty good or pretty well. Um, so Wordsworth pushes back and exclaims, "There is a God. No man is obsolete." And the dialogue uh, that the Chancellor uses is very akin. In this particular section, the dialogue is very akin, um, I believe, on purpose to um, the famous quote by the famous German economist Karl Marx. And he's famous for the quote, religion is the opiate of the masses. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that phraseology is even used in the chancellor's remarks to Wordsworth. So we, we come to the fact that the board weighs in and their verdict is he is obsolete. So Romney has a choice by which he can be liquidated. I have it right here. There are three choices, pills, gas, or electrocution. Those were his three options. Now, those didn't end up... He ended up choosing a bomb, atomic bomb or whatever. Unless it was a hydrogen bomb, which was made of gas. Yeah, yeah okay. I guess that right. would fit into the category. Yeah, the I guess I didn't think about that. Uh, so, um, then... The, by the way, this exchange in the Judgment Hall, I would say it probably takes up the bulk of the episode... We spend most of our time here. Um, so going back, he has the option, those three options, but Romney has a one request. He he wants to be given an actual assassin to which he will tell the method of execution, right? He doesn't want to reveal it to the, the courtroom. He wants to have this assassin person come to him personally he's going to tell his assassin exactly uh what method he wants to utilize and then he also has another request and that request is that there's an audience to witness the execution right so um and i just here's a question that i pose here i'll pose it to you jimbo here is this a commentary on the general public's obsession with quote-unquote reality tv is this? Is he just t- you know tapping into the fact that people a lot of times, even going all the way back to the first century, gla- with gladiators and such, uh, car accidents, disasters, real life executions, people's obsession with you know wanting to be involved or seeing like why people rubberneck on the highway when there's a bad accident. People want to see that type of thing. So I wonder if that was like his commentary on well. When did public execution stop? I wouldn't be able to tell you that. Like, I mean, like, but I'm saying, like, the United States. I mean, there are still certain states that still. But I'm saying, like, have the death penalty. If me and you, we can't go up here to the local jail and watch somebody get killed in a gas chamber or anything. It's not open to the public. Right. It's closed to the public. Yeah. Right. Sure. So, but there. Are, but I'm still, saying. But I'm saying if they had a pay per view live tonight from Indianapolis, <laughs> we would be murdering or killing. Someone so pedophile, and for ten bucks a month, you can like Netflix. You can go watch the execution. I'm sure it would, would do you very well. Exactly. Yeah. So that's what I, that was my question, and you sort of answered it too. Like I think that was Rod's commentary on why on the general public and their obsession with things like that, because he inserted that into the plot line that 
Romney would ask it to be uh, videotaped or, you know, cameras. And, and then we discover later in his apartment that the cameras were put up uh, on the wall. Um, and that's where that's where our next scene is. We're actually concluding with the, the courtroom scene now. We come to Romney's room, his house, his apartment or wherever, and we discover that through a cryptic message... It is the chancellor that arrives at Romney's residence. So apparently Romney wanted him to be his assassin. He wanted specifically for the chancellor that just passed judgment on him to be the one who uh, was his actual assassin. So um, he reveals uh, to the chancellor his method of execution, which is uh, by a bomb. And then the chancellor has to... He comes to sort of prove that the state isn't afraid of an obsolete librarian, which Romney retorts with, well, that's absolutely ridiculous. Why would the big bad state need to come and prove that they're tougher than little old librarian me, like that they're not scared? It's, it's kind of a joke, really, when you think about it. So the camera, which I aforementioned on the wall, works by remote control, and it will televise this entire execution. Going back to your point, though, do you... Like, I remember there were, was it Ted Bundy or somebody, maybe it was in Florida, it was in the late 80s. Uh, they, they obviously, like you said, they didn't have people in the actual execution chamber. But do you remember seeing video clips of people outside? At like, oh it, yeah, yeah, and there you, were hordes of people behind barricades outside. You're of the still prison. allowed to do that. Yeah, you just and can't then, watch the execution, right? And people were cheering, and like, even though they weren't a part of the actual visual of the execution, people actually took time out of their lives to like go and and they were yell cheering. And once the you know announcement came over the loudspeaker, I remember seeing video. I can't remember who it was. It was a I don't know. It was a uh, is it a John Wayne Gacy or something, something like, like that. that? Yeah, it might have been him. Um, but that sticks out in my mind uh, too. So this is all this is all, of course, videotaped. So Rodney um, he tells uh, the chancellor, excuse me, tells Rodney that they have televised an execution of thirteen hundred people in six hours. So. He's explaining to him that we're not scared of you. This is a deterrent. We're going to watch you squirm, basically, in your final hours when you know your fate is going to be. However, the tables have turned on and uh, on the Chancellor, and Wordsworth has locked the Chancellor and has revealed that he wants to die by way of a bomb and that the Chancellor is locked in the apartment with him, and there's no chance of escape. So if he's going to die then the chancellor's going to die, too. Now, I have a question. In the judgment hall, they said that they were going to send an assassin, and he would tell him the method of execution. So did they send somebody else beforehand to find out what he wanted to do? Well, that's why I said... And if so, why... I think it was a cryptic message. Like, Wordsworth was cryptically telling the chancellor, no, like, I want you to be my assassin. Well, no, no, I understand that, that. but, but who did he tell that I want a bomb in here? Oh, I don't and know. And why wouldn't he, if they knew the Chancellor was coming, you think they would have put more safety precautions up? Especially yeah. if the guy knew there was a bomb in there. Yeah, I don't know if the Chancellor was the only one that understood that and he came on his own. Yeah, I don't know. Or if there was another assassin that came before him and then set all that up. Because you can, you can yeah, say the know. Chancellor was the assassin, but he doesn't know the method that was going to happen. So he wouldn't technically be the assassin. Yeah. He would be the witness that he wanted there. Right. Yeah. That might be a, a small hole there too, that they might've needed to fill in, or maybe I just missed it. So Romney decides uh, that with his last 30 minutes, he's last 30 minutes of his life. He's going to read the scriptures. He's going to read the Bible. And then he tells the chancellor that, that the great equalizer is death. And he quotes here. He says, so, uh, here you have, here you have the strong, handsome, uniformed, bemetalled symbol of a giant authority and this insignificant librarian. And suddenly, in the eyes of God, there is precious little to distinguish us. So death is going to be the great equalizer, right? 
So Wordsworth begins to read aloud from the Psalms. By the way, all the all of the scriptures that are quoted in this episode are uh, from the Psalms. And the Chancellor, he sits back and lights up a cigarette. He's very nonchalant in the beginning, right? But you see this build. It builds and builds. And so then the Chancellor, he starts to panic and distress. And waves sort of rush over his face until finally he begs, let me out, let me out. At the very end, he... Uh, as the minutes tick down, you know, it gets closer. Well, he says, in the name of God, let me out. Right. And that's when Burgess Meredith's like, says, okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he gets up, that's he, all I wanted. He graciously and mercifully lets uh, the chancellor out. But the bomb still goes off. Right. And Romney never, I, that was one thing I didn't understand. He, he, when he opened the door, he didn't want to like follow him out. I don't know. But, uh, I mean, he was proving, I mean, I get it. He was proving his point that he was not afraid. But the reason I think he did that was he just condemned the chancellor. Right. To his his own own words. His own demise. Right. right? Yeah, sure. So from there, I kind of give it away a little bit. Romney relents as an act of mercy. And then the chancellor runs out and down the stairs before a huge bomb blast destroys the, well, not huge. Yeah. Just like a little poof. (laughs) Like a smoke bomb goes off. It wasn't like the Oppenheimer A-bomb. It was, yeah. But it blows the apartment up. Uh, So from the the next scene from there is we go back to the judgment hall, right? Mm -hmm. And then the chance of obsolete, they emanate from all around the gallery. And then, wouldn't you know it, the Chancellor, he is surrounded by those on the board who are growling. They like have this weird like, yeah. growling, chanting. Yeah. Kind of like... And I got a little something in my book oh, about okay. that, so um, we'll get there. Uh, so the Chancellor tries to run, and they grab him right at the end, and he sort of, I'm not obsolete. I can't remember what he says at the end, but then they grab him, and they drag him down that long table. Uh, table and then That uh, was really weird. Yeah, and then they just throw him on the floor, and they all surround him. Honestly, what I got from that was the the Night of the Living Dead that we just covered. Yeah, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm seriously, yeah, they look yeah. like zombies and getting ready to rip him apart. Right. So how? My question to you: Were they killing him there? I mean, I assume so. They were just but trounce him to death. That's what I'm saying. But yeah. then it doesn't make sense then if if he's been obsolete that he, then he gets so his, he gets to pick his, pick his method, method of, of death, right? Yeah, um, I don't know. They just all sort of attack him at the end, and they all doing that hump. And he tries to run, and they they you know they they get so, around him in a big circle, and then he tries to run. Right. So the the whole humming thing, um, it was a. Let me go to my awesome, awesome book, and it's going to be quite a little bit of that I read out of this, but it's the Twilight Zone Companion by Mark Scott Zickery. Um, so here we go. The final show of the second season was The Obsolete Man, Serling's cautionary tale of a neo-Nazi superstate of the near future. Not too far off. Although it is well acted, Serling has stacked the deck too much, presenting this story in such black and white terms that there is no controversy. The viewer can sit at home smug and comfortable, certain that he would never be part of such a state. These criticisms notwithstanding, The Obsolete Man is still a remarkable episode, thanks in large part to the contribution of director Elliot Silverstein. Silverstein had come from a live theater, and later he would direct such films as Cat Blue, or Bayou, and A Man Called Horse. In this, the first of four Twilight Zone episodes he would direct, he imposes upon us the proceeding his own unique theatric, theatricality. From the first, he made it clear what he wanted. Says Silverstein, it was vaguely reminiscent of some of the German films of the 20s, and there was a certain amount of expressionism in the style of the performances and the set. Indeed, the major set of the piece, the room in which Meredith is judged, is quite unlike anything seen before on the Twilight Zone. The walls are completely covered with black velvet. There is a single, long, narrow table. At the end of it is an immensely tall, narrow lectern behind which the Chancellor stands, elevated and apart. The only other feature of the room is the door, which opens from the middle. Like the table and the lectern, it is long and narrow. That was very tough to do, says Silverstein, because a door that high has never been built in television before. It was 25 feet, an enormously high thing. I had done some work like that in the theater before I came to Hollywood, so it was a very natural thing for me to just automatically adapt what I had already done and use use it in this. The people are too unusual. 
Starkly uniformed, they stand in attention on either side of the tables, arms at their sides, their shapes mirroring the shapes of the tables and lecterns and the doors. The lighting is harsh, casting long, narrow shadows. The first words of the episode come from the subtron Joseph Ellick. Wordsworth, Romney, obsolescence, whatever that word is. Um, a curiously harsh monotone that Silverstein reveals was inspired by the sound of Joseph McCarthy's voice during the Army McCarthy hearings. One sequence of the events which occurred during the making of The Obsolete Man had had several repercussions that have extended far beyond the Twilight Zone. Silverstein explains there was a key scene and a key moment in the expressionistic sequence when these two high vertical doors open and Fritz Weaver comes in to be addressed and judged, and the place was ringing by automation-like witnesses. Now, it was reminiscent, of course, both in structure and in my view of it, the Frank Kafka's The Trial, vaguely reminiscent not in the story but in the filling. Sometime before this, I had a nightmare that involved sounds, a group of people standing and looking at someone and just going deep-throated, ah, and it would grow stronger in intensity and move very slowly up the chromatic scale as it grew in intensity, but it had to grow in intensity first. I tried to reproduce that sound with this chorus, uh, which surrounded uh, Fritz Weaver. I wanted them to do absolutely nothing but stand there and start this deep-throated growl like, ah, until it reached a pitch of volume that required something else to happen, like a cover on boiling water. Until the water boils high enough, the cover won't move. So they started, ah, making their voices get lower (laughs) rather than higher, and they went louder, and they stared at him with a kind of insane fury. Then, when they could go neither uh, lower nor louder, I had them start moving slowly forward. As they reached him, they leaped on him like a pack of mad dogs and dragged him along the table. The editor was working very well with me until we came to that moment. He showed me that this rough assembly, and he had them moving immediately as soon as they started to growl. And I said, no, no, you don't understand. You'll, or you see, in the master shot, I have them standing there. He said, well, so what? I said, well, that is how I staged the scene. I want them standing there until their voices reach a certain pitch. The master is a message to you and to everybody else, he said. Well, I don't want to cut it that way. I remember very clearly. I felt my temperature and my blood pressure go up. I said, you what? I don't want to cut it that way. It's ridiculous, I said. It's only ridiculous because you haven't done it before. I want it this way, he said. I won't do it. I went to Buck Houghton, who resolved it with a compromise. However, it was a compromise. It never did what I wanted it to do, which was to have everybody in the audience saying, why aren't they moving? Why are they just all just doing this strange thing? All I wanted was the sound of voices on course to rise until the hackles rose on the back of your neck. So the compromise compromise was, I suppose, the best way of what Buck could achieve in trying to be fair to the editor with whom he had to work with again and a director who was being very adamant. I didn't forget that, and I felt that therein lay a reason why so many shows that I'd seen on television had seemed stamped out. There was no individual style. As a direct result of that very genuine anger, I called up Buzz Kulik and Lamont Johnson and all those guys, and we all got together. I told them what I just told you, and I said, Have you guys had similar experiences? You should have heard the roar that Sunday morning. I said, Why aren't we doing something about it? And we agreed that we could. I said, let's form a committee to assist the guild to start taking positions with management that will protect our rights as artists. They all agreed, and that's begun a campaign that's still not ended. Thanks to Silverstone's actions, significant changes have been made. Today, that could never happen, he says. If an editor said, I won't cut it that way, he'd be fired right there on the spot. Or if he weren't fired, somebody else would be called in. He would just simply have to do it. There would be no question about it, none. So because of this, they made another section into the Actors Guild, Editors Guild, that covers stuff like this where they don't want to do something, but the director says you have to. Hmm. I thought that's very interesting. Yeah, I didn't realize that there was that much controversy that surrounded the cinematography. Well, it's because if you want something done your way, and the guy's like, nah, I ain't doing it. That's like if you tell your boss, nah, I'm not doing that. (laughs) Yeah, you're going to get in trouble. But it's like, nah. So they ended up. Somewhat of a compromise, right? So half of the standing and growling, and then half of the grabbing. Right. Oh. Pretty interesting. Sorry, that was a little long-winded. No, but no. I thought it was no, very that was interesting. interesting that we need to we need to bring forward. Yeah, I had no idea that that uh, that that's good trivia. So let's move on with some of the trivia that I have here. And uh, Burgess Meredith, he received thirty five hundred dollars for the role of Wordsworth for this episode. 
He also got a first-class uh, air transportation from New York to Los Angeles and a complimentary return trip. The entire episode was filmed on Stage 5 at Hal Roach Studios. The interior of Wordsworth's apartment cost a mere $420 to construct. The apartment hallway and stairs cost $880. The interior of the cavernous room uh, where the judicial courts were held cost uh, the most at $2,700. The television lens installed in the librarian's room is the same prop seen in Mr. Dingle the Strong and To Serve Man. So that same little camera prop was used on two other episodes. Custom sound effects were created and synced at MGM's sync room on May the 10th, 1961. So uh, they had other things they needed to uh, audio they synced in. Uh, I wish we had some experts on our audio. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I won't give away. We've been trying for uh, hours to try to put together a a good, a better podcast setup. We're always trying to improve. Right. We'll Uh, get there. We'll get there. One of these days. When Eric gets Uh, the lottery. Yeah, right. (laughs) So uh, this episode of The Twilight Zone may have been Serling's attempt to dramatize the foolishness of the state uh, under dictatorship. The script was a combination of two previously written scripts. The earliest dates back to the early 1950s when Serling was writing scripts for a radio station, uh, WLW in Ohio, where he proposed an an anthology series uh, titled It Happens to You, featuring stories the radio listeners will become engrossed in whimsical tales not too dissimilar to The Twilight Zone. Episode 7 of this radio series, entitled Law 9 Concerning Christmas, and I have heard about this before, Law 9 Concerning Christmas episode explored the notion of a future society in which an unnamed town had passed a law which abolished Christmas. And uh, there was also a law against Christ. The church was declared off-limits to an entire village. The mayor, acting much like the chancellor in this Twilight Zone episode, tries to explain why such a law has been put into effect. The state did not recognize any such deity, and therefore, neither should the people. Yet he faced resistance when a crowd gathered at the front door of a church for midnight mass on Christmas Eve. After judging each of them for their crimes against the state, he attempts to pass sentence upon a little girl named Pat, or when a little girl, Pat, reminds the mayor that Christ died for a principle too. The second source for this episode was uh, called The Happy Place, an hour-long pilot script for The Twilight Zone that was formally rejected by the network. The story uh, concerning a future society where people reached a, uh, reach a certain age, they were considered obsolete. What's that movie you guys did? I'm going to put you on the spot. The movie you guys did that was uh, sort of sci-fi, futuristic, you and Kyle did that. Uh, people only live to like 30 years old. I can't think of it. In my, um, but I'll move on. Maybe you can look that up. But it, it, the plot was very similar uh, when I read this. It sounded very similar to that movie you guys already covered. So th- this particular... Logan's tw- Run. Logan's Run. Yeah, that's it. So uh, it, this episode that was rejected by the networks uh, was concerning a future society where people reached a certain age and they were considered obsolete, unnecessary for continued living, and promptly executed by the government. Serling combined the elements uh, from both of these to come up with the obsolete man, a nightmarish vision in which the state made decisions as to which citizens were allowed to live uh, because they served a purpose in society in which ones would be eliminated because they offered no benefit to society. References to Hitler and Stalin were brought to light by the chancellor, as well as a statement regarding the non-existence of God. Um, Just by way of Random uh, trivia, the Blu-ray release includes Rod Serling's plug for the following week's episode, <laughs> Where Is Everybody? Which was actually... <laughs> the first episode in season one, one, and it was the season, the, the series pilot. So, I don't know what you think. I think it fits where it needs to be. Where Is Everybody's a good opening. It, it, it starts the series off on a good, strong note. Uh, if they would have waited till season three, I mean, I don't know. That that would be too long of a wait for me, but what do I know? Um, Jimbo, you mentioned this earlier. A year and a half after Time Enough at Last in 1959, Burgess Meredith has a Twilight Zone character defined by his relationship to books. So as before, I think that's a good, that's a good story plot where mm-hmm. he's blown up in this episode. 
he dies. Or is it because of his his bomb blowing up? That's what caused the atomic bomb to go off. And yeah, the there was an place. atomic explosion in that right. episode too. Right. Yeah. So maybe that was the bomb that went off here. Oh, okay. Could be. Uh, when Wordsworth is reading from the Bible, he quotes the following verses. They're all from Psalms. They're Psalm 23, 59, 1, 14, 1, Psalm 53, 1, Psalm 142, 1, and Psalms 130, verses 1 and 2. So Fritz Weaver, he portrays a high-ranking member of a totalitarian state who at one point admires Adolf Hitler. Ironically, Weaver went on to play a Jewish victim of the Holocaust in Holocaust 1978. Um, in uh, November of ni- November 28th of 1961, issue of Show Business Illustrated, Serling commented that there is a propensity in our country to polarize things in black and white concepts. A man is either this or he is that. He's either a communist or he is on our side. And I think the reverse is true amongst liberals. If a man happens to be militarily or excuse me, if a man happens to be militantly and vehemently anti-communist, this guy's a suspect among the liberals. I've either got to climb into bed with the John Birch group, or I've got to move far over to the wild left where I don't want to sit either. It's kind of a dilemma, um, kind of a dilemma that you uh, might coin a phrase conservative liberal. I'd like to dramatize this problem. So just by reference, the John Birch group was a... Um, it was a nationwide chapter. They were a super alt-right conservative group in the 1960s, and their influence um, became widely known for their conspiracy theories, and they actually alleged that uh, President Dwight D. Eisenhower was a communist, and they were just an ultra-conservative group in the 1960s. So what Rod is saying here, like, you know, it's either black or white. He's, I'm either too liberal or I'm, uh, I'm anti, you know, I'm ultra conservative. So he's like, I, I can't win with either people group. Mm-hmm. So he was trying to illustrate that point. Um, then finally, um, actually, that was the end of my trivia. Uh, I, uh, under the category of goofs, I didn't recognize any goofs. I don't know, Jimbo, if you saw any Not really. goofs in the episode. I think with that, we can move on to you. Go ahead with your questions and observations and things you wanted to bring up, and well, I will mine. For me, um, this episode um, is dialogue heavy. There's not a lot of action. It, it's, it's, it's straight up a lot of dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are, those are hard to keep my attention. I, I told you I watched this three times last night, and I had seen it like twice before. I love Burgess Meredith to death. I think he's a fantastic actor. I think he did a good job in this episode. I, I think Fritz Weaver maybe even did a better job than him in this. To me, I think it shows the importance of why there should be a separation of church and state. Um, because if not, the society will end up like this even here in the United States of America. Um, yeah, they're huge concepts that he's tackling in this episode. Huge. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and, and that's, you know... That's for back then. I mean, that's that's even relevant to today. Um, so, so to me, um, I, I'd probably give this an eight out of ten. Um, now we've we've already seen Burgess and Meredith as what Mister Dingle the Strong this season too. Mm-hmm. So let's just say that's that's opposite ends of the spectrums of his acting ability too. But even in Mister Dingle, he shined as the star of the episode. Um, to me, it's it's dialogue heavy. I like the premise. I like the biblical aspect of it. I like everything about it. Um, but to me, when when at the end, it just it just then people moaning and then him dragging him across the table and and then seemingly ripping him apart. Um, I don't understand why he didn't get the same treatment that Dingle gave for being a librarian. I I don't know if it's because he said in the name of God uh, in the televised to the entire country that. On video, um, because he the, the, he said what the being there is no God, and now he says in the name of God, and that may be like their greatest sin, if you will, right, evoking the name of God, uh, right? That's maybe punished by death immediately, automatically. Yeah. My question to you is: Do you think that the um, Romney Wordsworth character was uh, a portrayal of Christ, hmm. of Jesus? 
I think there were elements to like his mercy in allowing the chancellor to leave. Uh, I think you could. I mean, I don't know that it was directly tied. I don't know if he was a uh, as far as Christology and all that. I don't. No, no. I'm just saying like a, a symbolizing a Christ. Symbol. A, a symbol. Uh, I don't know. I, I th- I think he was more symbolic of maybe a a, a Christ follower, a, a Christian, and what, how a Christian could or sh- should uh, act in the final hours of their life, and how their faith sustains them. Maybe it, it was kind of refreshing. I mean, the the actual mention of God in the scriptures being on network TV. Obviously, that wouldn't happen uh, today. <laughs> that that was that was one high high point for me. I don't know. Uh, to answer your question, I, I don't think so. But like I said, I think it, it would be symbolic of what a follower of Christ uh, might do. Um, my question to you and my observation and questions was, uh, was the main character, Romney Wordsworth, a play on words or possibly an homage uh, to Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, a poet and educator, because even though Wordsworth was a librarian, that word Wordsworth was maybe a play on words, even um, the written word and books, and you know, uh, maybe just on purpose that was his character's name. They did that on purpose, right? And and here's something else that 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 made me think. Um, there's a couple of of quotes that uh, uh, he said, like. He tells uh, he told him that history teaches you nothing, which he's a librarian. He should know that history teaches you everything. Yeah. Okay. So I don't understand why he would say that. Uh, the chancellor said that, or no? Romney, Romney said. says oh, okay. it. Okay. Uh, because you know, because because uh, the chancellor's like, well, history teaches us blah blah blah, you know, and he's like, history teaches you nothing. So I think he's wrong in saying that for one. Um, number two, I like how he had his Bible hid for over 20 years. You know, I mean, it's, it's, he's had it up there uh, because even owning one was punished by death, he says. Right. That, that's very reminiscent of communist uh, China uh, right. or Russia back in the Cold War era. Yeah. Right. Uh, I said, like I said, the cinematography is awesome. The, the, the use of light shadows, the clocks flying, the scriptures. Um, and the only other thing is if the chancellor wouldn't have asked to be released in the name of God, then that makes Romney a murderer. Right. So yeah. that's that's the only part I didn't like. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because he, he's spouting all the scripture he, off and all this, then he should he know turned the, table. the Ten Commandments, uh, you know, thou shalt not kill. He yeah, should know. He's uh, basically, yeah, an accessory to murder right. by trapping him in his own apartment. Exactly. Sure. So I'll just leave it with this. If if you're done um, with I, your comments, yes, you have but I else? do have something that about the end of season two that I'll say at the end of this. So. Okay, um, let me finish with Rod's sure. word, and this was a response to one Mrs. Kirch, uh, who wrote in uh, a letter, who was displeased. Call, actually, called the episode garbage or trash. That was her re- response. So he he wrote back with this: the obsolete man had a very simple premise. It was simply that you cannot destroy the truth by destroying the printed word. You cannot undignify man by destroying him. You cannot wipe away a belief in God by an edict. And sooner or later, every dictatorship must of necessity fall because sooner or later, thinking people with courage will overthrow it. So Mm. I thought that was a good summation of what he was trying to do. And what were you rating this one? I'm going to rate this one pretty high. And we're going to get to our rap episode, <laughs> and you'll see where it falls in my top ten list. I knew it was going to be in there. But just for rating's sake, you gave it an eight. I'd probably edge it up maybe to an eight five, probably. Okay. Eight and, and you know, I didn't really care for the episode, but right. I'm still giving it the, an The eight. subject matter alone, I think, is what, what the foundation is why I liked it so much. And I thought it was very well executed and uh, very well acted. It was a good episode. Right. So... Now that we've completed our year two, this is in the book, you know, the Twilight Zone Companion. This is what it says about the end of year two. For Serling, the spring of 1961 was like a replay of the previous year. Again, there were the host of awards, including another Hugo and the 1961 Unity Award for Outstanding Contributions to Better Race Relations. Then in May, another Emmy again for Outstanding Writing Achievement in Drama. In accepting, Serling held up the award and addressed the show's other writers, saying, Come on over, fellas, and we'll carve it up like a turkey. 
<laughs> Sterling wasn't the only Twilight Zone member to pick up an Emmy that year. George Clemens nabbed one for Outstanding Achievement in Cinematography for Television. No one could possibly have deserved the award more. The spring of 1961 also found CBS toying for the first time with the idea of expanding the Twilight Zone from a half hour to an hour. True, just two years earlier in the network had made Sterling uh, alter his concept of the series from an hour down to a half hour, but now the network reasoned that a bigger Twilight Zone would attract a bigger audience. Ultimately, CBS decided not to lengthen the Twilight Zone during its third season. Frankly, I'm glad of it, Sterling said at the time. We can keep that vignette approach. Little did he know that less than a year later, he, Boma, and Matheson would be busy crafting hour-length episode, uh, hour-length scripts. So, season four, we go to the hour-length, mm-hmm. uh, and it's only 18 episodes in season four. Right. Thus, The Twilight Zone survived its second year. So far, 65 episodes had been produced. The worst had been no less than entertaining, and the best had been unforgettable. Soon, the quality of the show would begin to slip. But for now, the series was at its peak, a peak which few television series before or after would attain. So stay tuned because on the next episode is probably some of my funnest times that Eric and I do, especially after, we've only done it the season one. This is the second time we do yeah, it, but it is our wrap-up tragedy show of season two of The Twilight Zone. So I can't wait. This is where we have a lot of discussion, a lot of differences of opinions, and it's just a good time altogether. So once again, this episode's coming to close, and that's a wrap. And that's a wrap on season two, and cut. Chancellor, the late Chancellor, was only partly correct. He was obsolete. But so is the state, the entity he worshipped. Any state, any entity, any ideology that fails to recognize the worth, the dignity, the rights of man, that state is obsolete. A case to be filed under M for Mankind in the Twilight Zone. <laughs>